People of God, let us once again turn to Luke's gospel as we continue our series through this magnificent gospel, the 11th chapter. Last week, we looked together at the magnificent introduction to Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer as the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father, because of intimacy, the unique Son of God has now given to us the privilege of being the adopted sons and daughters of God in heaven because He is absolutely sovereign. He is ready, willing, and able to hear and to answer the prayers of His people. We move on in that prayer, and we come now to the first petition. I mentioned to you last week why I thought it was necessary for me to read over these few weeks as we look at this prayer from the authorized version of the Bible, and if you have questions about that, don't hesitate to ask. Will you pray with me? Our Father, no matter where we may be in this gospel, it is all about Jesus Christ. And it is all about the salvation that he has brought so marvelously to us. It is all about the cross, his obedience to the law that we broke, but also the paying of the penalty of our sins. And even as he teaches his disciples here to pray, and even as we look at this text, we know that it leads on to Calvary. And so we would pray that always we would keep the cross, the resurrection, the ascension life of our Savior in view, for we are post-resurrection readers of this word. And we also, as your people saved by your grace, would learn how to pray. Indeed, because we are indwelt by your Spirit, we would ask that we would know an acceleration in our lives of prayer. But again, with thanksgiving for the cross, in which Jesus Christ bore our sins and took the penalty and bore your wrath in our place as our substitute, we praise and thank you. Father, for it takes us down to hell in the consideration of our need and lifts us all the way to heaven as we also contemplate what Jesus has done for us poor sinners. Hear our prayer, apply it to every heart, the reading and the preaching of your word. Through Jesus, our great high priest, we pray. Amen. Will you now stand for the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil." The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, for what 
do you most long? Upon what does your heart most meditate? For what do you most pray? What drives you? What makes you tick? What is the innermost passion of your soul? What do you want most in your life? What do you want most for others? What do you want most in the church? What do you want most in the world? Have you remembered secret prayer this week? And if so, for what did you pray most? What moved and motivated your prayers this week? Well, we now come to this first petition of the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed Be Thy Name. And that petition is probing, penetrating, piercing. This should be our soul's chief delight. This should be our chief desire. This should control our prayers and our living. Hallowed be thy name. This should be our soul's chief, primary desire. So as we come to this text this morning, let's begin by noticing, first of all, the priority of this petition. The priority of this petition, hallowed be thy name. There are, of course, six petitions, three for God's honor, three for our good, physical, emotional, and spiritual. Now, how wise were the framers of our Westminster Shorter Catechism? The very first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer you all know, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That reflects the priority of hallowed be thy name. But this also is what we find preeminently in the law of God. If you read the Ten Commandments, you will see that the first commandments are all about exalting God. No other God, no graven image, the sanctity of His name. And so as Jesus teaches us to pray, the priority that we find in the law of God is also the priority of this prayer that God be exalted in the midst of his people and in our lives. God is passionate for his own glory, and so should his people be. The end for which God created the world is his own glory. The end for which God created you and me is for his own glory. And when this controls our hearts, everything changes and is put into its proper place. Listen to how Isaiah puts this in Isaiah chapter 48. In that great Old Testament 8th century B.C. prophet, he says much about God seeking his own glory. But notice, for example, in chapter 48, verse 9, For my name's sake will I defer mine anger. He goes on in verse 11, For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory unto another? Or think of the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, in which we are told that we are chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. It goes to tell us that we are redeemed through him. It goes on to tell us about the Spirit of God that seals us. But three times in those 14 verses, to the praise of his glory to God's praise, to his praise, to the praise of his glory. He has saved you from your sin that his glory may be praised. Hence the priority of this petition. It must be first. But I ask us, is it first in our hearts? 
Is it first in my life and in yours that I desire to hallow the name of God? The burden of every regenerate heart, every person who is born from above, must be, Lord, now I want to live, though it is hard, though it is difficult, though I am a sinner still, yet saved by your grace, my chief desire is that your name be hallowed. Is that true of you? Well, if we're going to hallow the name of God, we need to know what name means. And so that's the second thing that we see in the text. What does name means? mean? Well, name, of course, means God's nature, who he is, the sum total of his attributes. God's name is the perfection of his character. Deuteronomy 28, 58, this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God. It is his self-disclosure. When you meet someone, the first thing you ask is, what is your name? I want to know you. Let's exchange names. God then comes to us, his covenant people, and he says, I have a name, and I tell you what my name is. And how rewarding it is to know that this infinite personal God wants us to know him intimately. He is our father, and that he reveals to us his name. And how wonderful to survey God's name by surveying the wondrous names of God in Scripture. Even hearing a few of them this morning will bolster the soul of the Christian. The Lord God, the Almighty, the great and dreadful God, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, the King of kings, the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord our righteousness, the only wise God, the God of peace, the God of hope, the blessed and only potentate, the King eternal, immortal, and invisible, our Father in heaven. Now these are names that God gives, the sum total of which is his name. Do you know how to take the names of God in Scripture and to turn them into prayer and to turn them into the promises that are actually there, inlaid in each of those names that he has revealed. But let me remind you of another name. When Moses was tending the flocks of his father-in-law in Midian, Moses saw this sight, this bush, He turned aside to see this bush that would not be consumed. And there God revealed his name to him. I am that I am. What is my name? My name is I am that I am. John Owen the Puritan says so wonderfully, the fire is a type of the presence of God in the person of the Son. The eternal fire of the divine nature dwells in the bush of our frail nature, yet it is not consumed thereby. God thus dwells in this bush with all his good will towards sinners. And when we come then to Matthew 28, God having said, my name is I am that I am, the self-contained God. And then we come to Matthew 28 and God tells his disciples to go into the world and to make disciples. And he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we find out the culminating name of God, the I am, the one whose name is the self-contained God, 
tells you, would you know my name in this new covenant era? I now reveal it completely and fully. My name is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. The triune God. And the time is coming, of course, when every knee will bow before Jesus, whose name is Lord. And so do you understand that we are called upon here to hallow the name of God and that it calls upon you and upon me to have this high biblical view of who God is? Surely the greatest problem that we face as Christians and the greatest problem the church in America faces is that we have a low view of who God is rather than this high biblical view. You cannot put him high enough. You cannot exalt him high enough. We cannot begin to trace his steps out enough. This is the God who has revealed himself in Holy Scripture as our Lord, Savior, and covenant God. That is his name. But we are called upon to hallow that name. So having understood what name means, what does it mean to hallow the name of God? Well, hallow means to sanctify, to set apart. It means to regard as holy. So in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, hallow Christ or sanctify Christ as Lord. That's our calling. We are acknowledging in prayer that God is sovereign, holy, matchless, incomprehensible, that he does all things to his own glory, that he loves himself, that he seeks himself, and it is right that he so do. He magnifies his own name in the beauty of holiness, and we are to magnify his name because of his holiness. We are praying that God will enable us and others to be filled with a spirit that is holy and reverential and filled with awe. That, to use Calvin's words, the substance of the petition is that the glory of God may shine in the world and may be duly acknowledged by men. And so I ask, do we do that? Is that the passion of your heart and of mine? Do we, do I, do you understand that the purpose of my life is to glorify God, that his, that his name may shine in the world is my greatest passion, that his glory may shine in my life, that his name may be acknowledged by men is the greatest desire of my heart. Well, that leads us to think through how we are to see this working out in our Christian life. For what are we praying? For what are we longing? What are the implications of this petition for prayer and for Christian living? That's the fourth thing. You see, we're asking something. It's a petition. And here are some things, at least, for which we are praying when we pray, Hallowed be thy name. When you pray, Hallowed be thy name, and really mean it intelligently and from the heart. First, it means that in all things we are praying God will glorify himself and that in all things his holiness will shine. You say, well, won't he do this anyway? Pastor, you're constantly teaching us from God's word. He's a sovereign and he will fulfill his will. Oh, certainly he will, but he wants you to want what he wants. Remember, our catechism teaches us that prayer is an offering up of our petitions unto God for things agreeable to his will. In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. 
God works his sovereign will through means that he has ordained and he has chosen to use the means of word and sacrament and your prayers for the exaltation of his name in the earth. So let me remind us of the priority here. We pray this before we pray even for our daily bread. God's glory is first and last in everything. And so we are praying that God will overrule the dishonor that is done unto his name. Psalm 76 verse 10, surely the wrath of men shall praise thee. Here we have the reminder that God even will overcome the wickedness of men to bring glory to his name. And for that we pray. Psalm 83, 17 and 18, let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish that men may know that thou whose name is Jehovah art the most God over all the earth. You see, God is such a sovereign that he can get glory for his name in every circumstance because God is God. What man intends for evil, God purposes for good. And the cross is the supreme example of this. In the cross, God hallowed his name and the wrath of men praised him. And that is that for which we pray when we pray, hallowed be thy name. But also we pray, secondly, we pray that God's name be glorified no matter what happens to our name. He must increase and I must decrease. And if it means hunger and want or loss of job or suffering or sorrow or sickness, may God in all of this give to us the grace to pray, hallowed be thy name. My brother was talking with an old, old woman who had been through trouble after trouble after trouble. And he said, how is it that you remain so cheerful and so, so Christ-centered? And she said, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. That is that for which we pray in this text. You know, George Whitfield was a great example of this. There were times of great persecution against Whitfield, but there were other times in which he rode high the popularity not only of the evangelical churches at least, but also of society. When he preached in London's Hyde Park, 80,000 people attended his sermon to hear George Whitfield preach. Now, a man that is self-centered and self-concerned would be overwhelmed by that and would not be concerned for God's glory. But Whitfield said, may the name of George Whitfield perish so long as Christ is exalted. May this attitude consume us as well. But we pray for something else. When we pray this great petition, hallowed be thy name, we pray that the goal of our lives might be the glory of God and not my glory and not my personal happiness as the world counts happiness. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Now what that text tells us is that God's glory and our desire for it extends down into the details of life. We see how the glory of God must be in control of the minutia of our concerns in life. What I eat, how I eat, what I drink, how I drink. My son asked me when he was very, very tiny, I'll never forget, he asked me, what am I, what am I meant for? And that question is deep within man created in God's image. 
The answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What are you meant for? The answer is, you are meant to pray and live life with the desire that God's name be hallowed. Young people, that's why you're here. Uh, looking ahead, looking at all of the, the wonderful things that you want to do in life, uh, make sure that what is chief, what is paramount, is your concern to hallow the name of God. And so personal happiness, listen, that's not a bad thing, personal happiness. It can be God's good gift to us. But what about those times in which personal happiness and God's glory clash? Basil spoke of a maiden condemned to fire for her faith in Christ. Her life and property were offered to her if she would only bow to an idol. And her response, let life and money go. Welcome Christ. Is that our attitude? Eric Little refused to run on the Sabbath. He would not seek his own glory. He would not seek his own happiness at the expense of the glory of God. And you know what? That actually was Eric Little's happiness. You may or may not know this, because this congregation is familiar with Sinclair Ferguson. The person who disciples Sinclair Ferguson when he was a young Christian is the same person who discipled Eric Little. And he told Sinclair, you know when he had to make that decision about running in the Olympics on the Sabbath? He said it was no decision. There was no churning in his heart. He just said, no, I'm going to honor the Lord of the Sabbath. And so, when personal happiness and God's glory seem to clash, go my personal happiness. Lift up the glory of God. But then fourthly, we are denouncing when we pray, hallowed be thy name. We are denouncing every attempt to divide God's glory between God and us. Isaiah 42, verse 8, a familiar passage to you, but why don't you turn to it so that you see it with your own eyes. Isaiah 42, verse 8. Again, one of those passages in Isaiah in which he is underscoring this very truth. You know the passage, you know the chapter. But he says in verse 8, Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I am Yahweh, I am Jehovah, that is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. You know, around here we use the term Calvinism. If you ask me what Calvinism is and you want to have just a basic answer, fundamentally what is Calvinism, I will tell you. It is being consumed with the glory of God. That is our calling. Let me add fifthly, when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we are praying that God's name will be glorified in our conduct and in our speech. Now, what is the essence of childlike fear? The essence of childlike fear, the answer is simple, the child knows his father loves him, and he is concerned to please his father and not to displease his father. And so the Christian wants to live for his heavenly father. And that means that if you love me, 
you will obey me, is something that is fundamental to the Christian life. I think it's the saddest thing that today the word obedience is almost absent from Christian vocabulary. The word obedience has almost been removed from evangelical conversation. They they seem to think that if you stand in a pulpit and you preach to God's people that God calls upon you to obey, that you're a legalist. Well, you're not a legalist. Not if you preach it properly. If Christ has died for me, if he rose from the dead for me, he owns my life He is my Lord, and he has the right to say to me, obey me, my child. And so when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we are praying, Lord, help us to learn in our conduct and in our speech to really obey you, to do what you have called us to do, to be burning and shining lights for Jesus Christ. And such knowledge of God makes us say, with the martyrs of old, my conscience, I can never submit to this world. Fear not him who is able to kill the body, but him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Reverence God's name. Young people, listen. Young and old, listen. Minister, listen. God calls upon us to reverence his name by obedience to his word, his way, his will, his law. But then let me add this also. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, we pray that the Lord's name be hallowed in our worship. Now, of course, I mean by that, first of all, in our form of worship. Not anything goes in worship. And the thing that I think most saddens me about the direction of things, even in reform circles, is that there is much that I think is really carnal, Uh, that is not God-centered, that does not help the people of God even have a sense in worship of God's holiness, that his name should be reverenced and hallowed, that has become a part of worship today. But I'm not focused there right now in this congregation. I think our form does honor the Lord. I want to know what sort of heart we bring to the form. I'm asking the question, do I come having believed and repented? Do I come to public worship from private worship? Do I spend that time with God that prepares me to come with God's people and actually to sing his name with a heart that is filled with a burning desire that his name be hallowed in our midst because he has promised to inhabit the praises of his people, has he not? I'm asking, when you come, have you prayed that the service from beginning to end will hallow God's name? Do you allow your ministers to come into this pulpit without being prayed for? I ask you these things. I'm talking about, I'm preaching to us primarily about the disposition of the heart. You know, years ago, in the late 1940s or mid-1940s up until about 1950, there was a tremendous revival that came upon the Isle of Lewis in Scotland. It's off the west coast of of Scotland. Even today, Lewis is kind of an island off to itself, large island with several parishes. And there were two ladies who were praying because the churches were emptying out and young people were disinterested in the gospel and did not want to attend worship. And there were two very, very old ladies who began to pray, asking God to send revival. And God did. And it's marvelous and remarkable. It's actually a very strange story. 
This particular minister that came that was going to stay just a few weeks actually stayed for several years as a part of what God was doing in that particular community of believers in Jesus Christ. But on one night, I'm just, listen, I mean in the middle of the night, on one night, all of these people around the island, unbelievers, began to sense, I'm on the road to hell. And they got out of their beds and out of their houses and they began to make way to the church because that's where they thought they would hear something to help them with this, this burden. And Christians that knew that they wanted to believe and repent and be more faithful began to come to the church. There was a dance. 100 young people left the dance with a sense of conviction. They're dancing along. All of a sudden, they're convicted. They leave the dance and they come to the church. All of these people come. That was the movement of the Holy Spirit in the place. Revival is not something we work up. It's something that comes down. God did it. It's just that simple. And it spread from parish to parish throughout the island. Nine young people were converted. Nine of those young men are now ministers in the Free Church of Scotland or in Presbyterian churches in Scotland. It's a marvelous story. It's a marvelous thing. But when you learn about that revival on the Isle of Lewis, the thing that will always come through is that they say, God seemed to be everywhere, which he is. There was an awareness of God that gripped the whole community and gripped the souls of men and women and children. There was, if we may use the language of this text, an overwhelming desire that God's name be hallowed. And that is what we need. You know, somebody says to me, some minister, you know, I've got several thousand people that come to my church. How many of them are at your prayer meeting? That'll tell me something. I wonder, are you praying for this in the church here, in your life, in the church in America? That once again we would hallow God's name? That this sense of God's presence would pervade the worship of our churches? That it would pervade our lives? Some mocked Calvin. They said the man's God intoxicated. Amen and amen. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. You know what Paul is saying? Don't be controlled by these other substances. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Yes, be God intoxicated. That's our calling. So some of us here, all of us, some of us perhaps are neglecting. As Christians used to say it when I was a young man, you need to do business with God. You actually need to get on your knees and you need to spend time with God. You need to say, my heart is cold. My heart is not warm as it once was. My, my desires for God's glory, my desires are, are very pitiful and poor. That indeed I'm quenching the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. That I do not delight in your word as I once did. And you need to do business with God. I'm not loving as I should love. I'm, I'm cold toward my neighbor or 
And the wonderful thing is, Jesus will receive us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's his promise. Well, listen to the words of Herman Hoeksema. He says this, He is all the glory of creation, of the government of all things, of salvation, of him and through him and to him are all things. Nor must we glorify him and praise him for some things which he does, while in other things we fail to see and acknowledge his infinite goodness. For his work is always perfect. In our whole life, with all of its vicissitudes, as well as in the whole course of the world's history and of the history of the church, we must see his work and adore his name. He sends prosperity, but also adversity. He makes peace, but war is also his. He gives health, but he also lays us on our sickbed. He maketh alive, but he also kills. Many of the details of his work we cannot now understand, for we are children of the moment, and from the viewpoint of our passing existence, we cannot see the perfection of the whole of God's work. But believing his word, we know that he doeth all things well, and that he is always worthy of praise and honor and glory forever. To hallow his name means that we express this praise, rejoice in the God of our salvation, and that we declare his glory to him in prayer and in adoration, in speech and in song, and that we confess and proclaim his adorable virtues before one another and before the world. Praise God. Now the text also has a future reference. The day is coming in which there will be no hindrance to us as believers in Jesus and giving glory to God from the heart. Right now we struggle because we are still sinners in our hearts. But let me now speak to those who may be here who do not anticipate at this moment. You cannot because you do not know Christ. You cannot anticipate the day in which you will sing his praises in heaven. The glory of God is even more important than the salvation of a sinner. God will get his glory even in the depths of hell. And if you have not yet trusted in Christ, you have not yet begun to magnify the Lord from the heart. He's a father to his people, but he's a sin-avenging judge to those who do not receive his son in faith. The name of God is no comfort to the man who refuses to repent. That's why there's a low view of God, I'm convinced, by the way. You do away with this high view of God, then you can hold on to your sin. You have a high view of God, then it calls for repentance. The great sin of our age is a low view of God. But may you see his attributes gloriously revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. May you there look upon Christ crucified and there see the infinite justice of God, his almighty love, his sovereign mercy, and I call upon you, come to Christ. There's no hope without him. There's no salvation without him. There's no heart that glorifies God without him. You will never glorify God until you know Christ. Come to him. Come to the cross. Come to the Savior whose blood is sufficient to save even the most rebellious sinner. And God, God puts his name on that promise. That he will bring his people by faith to himself. He puts his name on it. Name? God says, 
whoso calleth on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And God's people said, Amen.